You're listening to TIP. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by the brilliant author Edward Chancellor to discuss his new book, The Price of Time. What is the price of time? It's very simple and it's very complicated. The price of time is the interest rate. In this interview, we're starting the story behind the interest rate and how it has caused boom and bust throughout time. And my favorite part is whenever we talk about John Law, perhaps the most legendary character in all financial history. Sometimes reality exceeds imagination, and the story of John Law is no different. Let's just say that boring of all words is not how you want to describe him. You are listening to the Investors Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to the Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Broderson, and I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by Edward Chancellor today. Edward, welcome to our show. Well, thanks for having me, Dave. Edward, let me just jump right into the first question here today. It's about Mesopotamia. What a wonderful way to start <laughs> an outline. Today's modern-day Iraq, they charge interest rates on loans before they've discovered how to put wheels on cards. We know this because Mesopotamians recorded their loans on clay tablets. When debt was settled, the tablets were destroyed. And luckily for historians and student of histories, they didn't destroy them if they were unsettled. And I guess that was also sad for the debtors and, and creditor. So it seems like a lot of debt was unsettled. But interest was generally paid in the same commodity as loan, so commonly silver and barley. And we know that the Babylon king, Hammurabi, regulated the maximum interest of loan to silver to 20% and barley to 33.33%. With that as a backdrop to our conversation today, there is no doubt that interest has played a crucial role in societies throughout time. Even the Bible mentioned interest rates. And in the Bible, we also learned about debt jubilee. So let's start there. What is debt jubilee and why is it important for a well-functioning society, perhaps even today? A debt jubilee is an official forgiveness of debt by the government, by the ruler. And we find debt jubilees across the ancient world. In Mesopotamia, it became common when a new ruler took power to forgive actually to forgive the barley debts, but not the silver debts. So the barley debts, one could assume, went largely to farmers. And then one finds debt jubilees decreed in ancient Israel at a period of, I think, a regular period of 50 years. You get forgiveness of debts in ancient Greece by the lawgiver Solon. Say we have these either linked to the change of regime a regular time period or a sort of one-off. And why do they have debt jubilees? Because one of the problems that people have noticed about interest since its early origins is that interest can compound over time and that the compounding of, of interest leads people to get into greater and greater debt. In the ancient world, that often meant that the debtor would fall into a position of debt, bondage, and slavery. So. The forgiving of the debts was a way of, of leveling, of bringing you know, these, this great pile, mountain of debt back to a, a level and start again. And yeah, so that, that I think is the main reason for the Jubilee. Why do we need it today? Well, I mean, it's only a fringe, <laughs> a fringe notion that debt should be forgiven today. And occasionally that's, you know, occasionally that's called, there have been calls I think, you know, 20 odd years ago to forgive debt to less developed countries. But our debt, the modern debt jubilee, really occurs through inflation, what we call, you know, what the economists call financial repression by keeping interest rates actually below the level of inflation. The principle of the debt gets paid off. So it's a, we have a sort of sneaky, <laughs> sneaky protracted debt jubilees. You, you could say that, you know, this year, even though interest rates are going up, inflation is much higher. So obviously, the, the real value of the, of the principal owed in debts is, is shrinking. So you could say we're at the early stages of an ongoing debt jubilee. It definitely would make headlines if we said, let's just forgive all debt. But as you said, we found another way of not saying it, but still doing it. Towards the end of the book, I do mention 
the case of, of Iceland after the 2008 crisis. And there, Iceland, probably no country on earth, had borrowed as recklessly as the tiny country of Iceland during the global credit boom, running up foreign liabilities of 10 times Icelandic GDP. And much of the debt that they ran up was wasted on poor investments. After the financial crisis, the Icelandic government put the major banks into receivership and into runoff mode and actually defaulted on their foreign debt. So sort of a default is another way of, of a debt jubilee. And as I mentioned, Iceland, going down this route, actually recovered much more rapidly than the US or the European countries that went down the different route that we'll discuss later of sort of quantitative easing and low interest rates. So, Edward, let's still stay in time of history. Let's talk about Seneca the Younger, born 4 BC. He's primarily known as the historic philosopher in ancient Rome, I guess, today. And I find it fascinating how he's thinking about time and how is that is related to his views on interest, not only because he is painfully inconsistent, but he still said a bunch of interesting things about it. How did Seneca think about interest rates and how is that perhaps relevant today? Well, I'm not sure if Seneca directly addressed the question of interest. He was, there is a sort of inconsistency about Seneca where he advocates, as you say, a stoicism, really an unworldly position. But at the same time, he was tutor to the Emperor Nero and he amassed a great fortune. He gave lavish parties. He lent his money with a group of people, a group of other Romans into Britain. And apparently it said that when Seneca and his, and his friends called in their loans, it was that that triggered the famous British revolt of Queen Boudicca. But I think that what Seneca does say, and this becomes very important later on, is that time is man's most precious possession. And the important thing about interest and why I called the book The Price of Time, in interest is really putting a price on how we spend our time. And Seneca's notion that time is man's possession is revived in the Renaissance period in, in Italy. It's at that moment the bit people then begin more overtly to justify the practice of interest as, as a use of time, the use of capital over a period of time. I think that's the sort of main lesson that one takes from Seneca. And history tends to repeat itself, or at least it tends to, to rhyme, as is often being said. We already talked here about the Babylon king and, and how he tried to regulate interest rates. You also mentioned in a wonderful book, Queen Elizabeth in 1571, signing into law at the cap interest rate at that time around 10%. And yet here we are today and regulators are still trying to solve for the ever relevant challenge of so-called fair level of interest on loans. It's always tricky whenever you use the word fair, I should, should say that. But how can we think about monetary value across time? And what is the concept that economists call income smoothing? So the time value is linked to humans' natural impatience that we preferred to have things sooner rather than later. But also, if you're engaged in any economic activity, if you say you have a factory, you're producing something, sooner and quicker you can produce things, the more profitable you're likely to be, and providing obviously you keep your costs under control. And so there is an incentive, or at least there should be an incentive, to use your time wisely. In fact, actually, although I didn't mention it in the book, I came across the other day the concept of something called demurrage. That derives from the verb to demur or to slow. And apparently in medieval Europe, ships were fined. They find a demurrage charge if they took a long time unloading their goods in the port. So as you see, <laughs> everything is linked. An, an efficient economy is sort of driven by a charge on time. And if we don't have any charge on time, we will tend to, to do things more, you know, to take too much time. As for income smoothing, when people are young, they can expect their income to grow over time. And therefore, people 
you know, say, for instance, students going to university will borrow and then pay back those debts over time. And they might borrow also for consumption purposes. And the extent to which they will borrow and the interest rate they pay is linked to, so to speak, their time preference or their degree of impatience. Some people will borrow more because they're eager to consume more rapidly today. Others won't be so much engaged in income smoothing. But there is a sense that when people are young, they're more impatient and keener to borrow. And therefore, you could say that their internal interest rate is higher than a person who's old, who's not expecting their income to grow any future and therefore not keen to borrow and pay interest. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Our friends at Coriant provide wealth management services centered around you. Coriant's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. They are one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. The teams at Coriant put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Coriant.com. That's spelled C-O-R-I-E-N-T dot com. That's Corient dot com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network and the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. So as a student of economic history, I found that the most fascinating character is perhaps the Scottish economist John Law. Many words could be used to describe his life. I would not say boring is one of them. He conducted the world's first experiment with easy money, certainly debunking the myth that Scottish people should be cheap in any kind of way. Could you please tell his story? I know, I know it, like, we could probably do an entire episode just in John Law and his quite exhilarating life. Yes, I mean, you could do an entire season of right. John Law. <laughs> yes. He's the, most, he's the most extraordinary figure in the entire history of finance. And when I think about him, I have to pinch myself, say, is this guy for real? Uh, We made him up. So John Law is the son, born in the late 17th century, is the son of an Edinburgh goldsmith. And bear in mind that goldsmiths at that time were not just merely selling sort of gold and silverware, but they they were the early bankers. They were taking in people's silver and gold and lending out, lending the money with paper. So they were starting to use paper notes. And then Law's father dies. He, when he's young, he inherits a certain amount of money. He goes to London, becomes a bit of a dandy and a fop, goes, spends a lot of his time at the gambling tables, loses his fortune, gets into an argument with another dandy, and they have a duel, and, and Law kills this man in a duel. And then Law is arrested. He escapes. He escapes jail, is sentenced to death in absence, flees to the continent of Europe, spends the next 20 years touring around Europe from one capital to another, Amsterdam, Genoa, and other places. And ends up 
in Paris. And over that time, he's got better at gambling. He has an extraordinary head for figures. He would probably now work for the sort of Jim Simons Renaissance Technology Hedge Fund. You know, he's, he's, he, he has, <laughs> he has a supercomputer in his head that can calculate fine probabilities at a time when people's understandings of probabilities were a bit less sophisticated than today. He then develops an interest. Well, over the course of his years in exile, he develops an interest in, as I say, economics, or in particular, he, he, he proposes a, a land bank, a bank that would lend money against land. And he also writes a famous pamphlet called Money and Trade Considered, in which he argues that money that at the time would have been considered a precious metal like gold and silver was really only the, was not an object that was exchanged in value, but merely was just a yardstick of value. And if money is just a yardstick of value rather than something inherently valuable in itself, then there's no need to have gold or silver backing money uh, as we see today. So law is the first, so to speak, monetarist economist. He believes that if you replace gold and silver currency with a paper currency, you can bring interest rates down. And he believes that if you print more money, what we would call sort of boost the money supply, that you will bring economic prosperity. So those are the ideas he's formed. He goes to France. He gets the, he presents himself to the regent of France after the death of the old king, Louis XIV in 1715. And he says to the regent, can I start a private bank in France? And the regent gives him permission to do so. He then takes over a, a trading company in France. And that trading company is then merged with a number of other, with all France's foreign trading companies. It also acquires the contract to raise taxes in France. It, it acquires the French mint. It acquires the tobacco monopoly. And you know, its most famous possession is the so-called Louisiana Company, which laid claim to half the current landmass of the United States. So this is, by any measure, an extraordinary extensive holding company. But the law's not finished. <laughs> he then says to the regent, I want to turn my private bank, a bank which was in a way conventional that issued notes that could be exchanged for gold, into a central bank or national bank that was called the, the Banque Royale. And this is in early 1719. He then goes for broke <laughs> by issuing paper currency and withdrawing gold and silver from circulation. And there's a massive increase in the money supply over the course of 1719, roughly the doubling of the money in circulation. And interest rates come down. They, uh, in the early part of the decade, they were about 8% in France, and they fell to 2% and sometimes a bit below 2%. And here you see, uh, we witnessed in recent years, people valuing stocks, shares off the level of interest rates. So when interest rates are low, they feel that a high valuation is justified for their stock. And that was the case with Mississippi Company, which this enormous business that went up, started to trade on a, a price earnings ratio of 50 times, which is roughly three and a half times the long-term average of the US stock market. And that P of 50 times is equal to a dividend yield of, of 2%, which is the same as the current prevailing interest. Now, Law, the final sort of, his final act is to offer to take over for the Mississippi company to take over the entire French national debt. And he gets the bond, the people the government creditors to convert their credit into Mississippi shares. And to keep the Mississippi shares high during this conversion, he prints money and uses the money to buy the Mississippi company shares. 
So this, as I say, is very like a quantitative easing operation, what we would call quantitative easing operation, where a central bank is going out and buying debt, or in this case, shares in the company that is acquiring the debt, in order to keep interest rates down. And there occurs during this period an extraordinary speculative, and the Mississippi share price rises 20-fold, and a large number of enormous fortunes are made. And this is a period in which the term millionaire is first coined, a French word. So Paris is teeming with millionaires and law and people come in from all over Europe to try and buy shares in the Mississippi company. And little bubbles <laughs> appear in other markets, you know, in, in, in London, in Amsterdam, in Lisbon. So this, this is also the sort of first, not, not exactly globe bubble, but sort of European-wide speculative mania. And Law himself, by his own reckoning, has become the richest man who ever lived in the in space of a very short period of time. And he's deemed to be, he's also appointed French finance minister and is considered you know, the greatest statesman and most powerful statesman in Europe. So this is an extraordinary achievement, if you think about it, for a man who you know, starts out in life as a bankrupt murderer to become this great figure. And then it all falls to pieces. It falls to pieces because inflation enters the system, not the asset price inflation that everyone likes, but the widespread in commodity and food prices that creates what we would call today a cost of living crisis. And law then, share price, the Mississippi company starts to sort of wobble a bit. People start selling Mississippi company shares and trying to translate their wealth into something, in something more secure. And another sort of English word, or at least financial word, coined at the time, was realization, to realize your profits, to make real. It's an interesting term because if you think of it during bubbles, the very notion of a bubble is that the wealth is, is chimerical, isn't really of any substance. So to realize your profit is to take something that is that has sort of perhaps no, no value or a dubious value and turn it into something real. Anyhow, so people realize their profits, then this, and the scheme falls to pieces, and law then has to choose, is he going to carry on inflating, or is he going to sort of put his foot on the brakes? And he chooses to deflate the currency, or some of the currency from circulation, and the whole Mississippi bubble collapses, and law is, has to flee the country. In the space of 18 months, he goes from, you know, from a projector into the world's richest man ever, and then to having to flee, leaving behind his wife and daughter and his fortune. And then the rest of his life, he really spends on the road, going from one country to another, ending up in Venice eight or nine years later, where he goes back to his old gambling and, get, and apparently seems to earn a sort of decent sum of money offering people things of dice. So he has, as you say, a, a pretty eventful life. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of The Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3539 or visit iFlexPodcast.com. Call right now, 888-994-3539 or visit iFlexPodcast.com. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day -day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? 
So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. Up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business. And they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right. Back to the show. You know, he's such a fascinating person. And he is a person, like, whenever you read books about economic history, he is usually always there. And, and I have to say that what you do in your book is perhaps the best I've read about John Law. It's, it's so fascinating the way that you tell his story. And one thing I always think about whenever I read about John Law is do you think he truly believed his system would work? Yes, I think so. He. There is an interview, I think I cite, where a French ambassador visits him in Venice towards the end of his life, and Law still seems to be convinced in the viability of his plans. Like, (laughs) as I say, the first monetarist, the first fiat money central banker, and one thing we know about fiat money central bankers is they don't always, when they make mistakes, confess to their errors. So there's something quite dogged about Law. I think he was way too ambitious, moved far too quickly, and didn't particularly have an eye for the details. One biographer says that Law's scheme was the most ambitious economic experiment before the Russian Revolution. <laughs> and I think that's a, that's a fair description. But go back to the way I'm trying to write it. You're right. You know, many people have written about law. So it's not exactly the unknown story. What I'm trying to do is to show how law is one of his prime motivations is to bring down the interest rate. So he is, as another biographer said, a low interest rate advocate, and he succeeds in his aim through monetary policy. And the modern monetary economists look back at law and they say, well, law provided the framework for modern central banking. And these comments were being made over the course of the last decade at the time of the quantitative easing and so forth. What I found rather extraordinary is there you have it that law has, you know, the first great experiment in quantitative easing to revive an economy and to bring down interest rates that ends in the most phenomenal disaster. And our modern central bankers were either wittingly or unwittingly following law, but seemed 
to pay no attention to the fact that the system ended with a resounding failure. It is very interesting to think about, and he was just so smart, and, and and like you alluded to, he might be too smart for his own good. It's so interesting how his scheme was, in many ways, designed to alleviate the French nobles that were heavily indebted for us, and and here we are. Let me just let me let me leave it at that. But Edward, you compared the collapse of Lehman Brothers in September two thousand and eight. To be somewhat similar to the French economy after the death of Louis the Fourteenth, a toxic mixture of deflation, high unemployment, and soaring government debt, and it seems like monetary policymakers respond to the conditions by taking the lead from Lowe's copybook. And you already sort of like alluded to some of that before in your response, but could you paint some color around how come? How can we connect those two stories? Well, the Louis Quatorze, the so-called Sun King. Had a very long reign and got the France into huge debt because he was constantly engaged in warfare with Britain and and Holland, other places, and very extravagant. And so, at the time of his death, there were huge amount of debt. I think the Fran- French debt was about equivalent of one hundred percent of GDP of French GDP, and the debts were trading at a discount to their face value. And the country, as you say, was was depressed, and the price level was falling. And laws, so you had this sort of <laughs> bad, bad debt, deflation, and economic depression, and a large—not just bad debts, but a large mountain of debt. And Law's idea is that this can all be cured by waving a monetary wand. And I think you know he then really, as, as I have said before. When he then founds the Royal Bank and issues paper money, he sets up the progression from a gold-backed currency to a pure paper currency, what we call a fiat currency. People who speculate in the Mississippi Company zone, you could say that they're envisioning, envisaging a world in which you know the riches of the United States come forth, or they're envisaging a world of paper money and, and manipulated interest rates. But in fact. <laughs> These things, the spectators often see the future. They draw the, a distant future into the present, and in this case, the you know obviously it took a while for you know the U.S. to you know, the American riches to be established, but also fiat, fiat money didn't really become established until '71 when the U.S. brought the uh, the post-war Bretton Woods currency system to an end. So. Law was, you know, almost two hundred and fifty years ahead of his time in that respect. And I think that you know there is, you know, as I say, to go back to it, one of the things that we know about fiat money is it has an inherently inflationary aspect to it. You know, the the gold dollar, the dollar was worth an ounce of gold was worth just I think around twenty three, twenty four dollars up till nineteen thirty three, and now. You know, it's probably around sort of eighteen, nineteen hundred dollars. Yeah, eighteen or nineteen hundred dollars to an ounce. So you can see huge collapse in the value of money. And I think that Law's inflation, the, the, and what I think what Law does is he encourages people to think that you can use money to dispel your economic problems. But it would appear to me that the inevitable consequence of that. Is that you depreciate the value of your currency, and that really is shown in his own period. But then, you know, course of the the twentieth century, and then as you know, as we're experiencing again today. Just one quick note on Louis the Fourteenth, the Sun King. It was said that he used wine in his fountains whenever he was having his elaborate parties, and. I want to use that as a segue to the next question because one person who probably I don't know if he would even be drinking wine, but definitely not having in his fountains would be John Bull. And our audience might or might not be familiar with with John Bull. He is the personification of British common sense, and we know that John Bull can stand a great deal, but he cannot stand two percent. So, former East India Company doctor John Fullerton, who turned banker, claimed that two percent was the Tipping point into financial folly. Looking back at the recent years, so more 
last year, perhaps than, than here in 2022. I just find that to be a quite interesting statement. Could you please talk to us about the psychology of the 2% tipping point? So that 2% tipping point, as you mentioned, was first described by a very obscure figure called John Fullerton, who no one would have heard of. But people do, who know a bit about financial history, are aware of the most famous 19th century financial journalist, editor of The Economist, called Walter Badgett. And Walter Badgett, he comes from a banking family, not far from where I live in Somerset. And so he knew about banking, knew about finance, and he went and he became editor of the, of the Economist. And Badgett noted that, and I think he borrowed from this fellow Fullerton, that the speculative manias and lending crazes tended to coincide with periods of low interest rates. And it, it was he who, who coined the phrase, which he repeats again and again in his writings, John Bull can stand many things, but he cannot stand 2%. And then, then Thatcher elaborates, faced with a loss of income, people will do foolish things to make good, and they will engage in speculations, into you know, canal speculations or railway speculations. He says, he makes a good point, a badger way, he says, people, when interest rates come down, you must either be, the investor must either be less poor, uh, so less rich, or, or less safe. <laughs> In other words, there is a trade-off between risk and return. And what we find, and this is what modern research confirms, is that the periods of low interest rates do encourage people to take more risk. And in fact, the recent research suggests it's not 2% yield, but actually a 3% yield that is the threshold. And we see, and as I describe in the book, you know, in the low rates of interest uh, that prevailed after the global financial crisis, the lowest interest rates in five millennia, all sorts of risk were taken. I also said slightly earlier, writer on economics, an Italian called Ferdinando Galliani. And Galliani has an interesting definition of interest as being the price of anxiety or the price of risk. So you see there is a, and that's one of the key functions of interest that I think is misunderstood by the policymakers because they think you can lower the interest rate like a lever in order to encourage people to borrow more and to to you know, bring deflation to an end, to lower unemployment. But if you're playing around with the price of risk, you're also going to be unwittingly encouraging a buildup of risk in the system, and you probably won't know where that risk is building up. So Badgett, I think, deserves great credit for making this early connection. And I, go, I have a chapter on early connection between interest and, and, and speculative booms or, or bad lending, not just bubbles in, in stocks, but also foreign lending booms as well. And I have a chapter sort of showing how that pattern played itself out over the course of the 19th century. It's difficult to have an episode about economic history without talking about the great economist, John Maynard Keynes. I actually, I just finished the letters from Nick Sleep, which is a brilliant British investor. And he actually mentioned John Maynard Keynes. And he said that allegedly one of the last things he said before he died was that he had a deep regret of not drinking more champagne while he had the chance. That was not what the question was about. It was just a wonderful anecdote. But even the great economist John Maynard Keynes seemed to have changing thoughts on what economists call the natural level of interest. Could you please, Edward, explain to us what is that concept and would you argue that it's relevant to manage the monetary policy of today's economy? It's a thorny problem, the question of what's called a, a natural rate of interest. If you look at the, early, at the writings of early economists in the 17th century, they're tending to, you remember you mentioned Queen Elizabeth's statute on usury that fixed the, that fixed the maximum rate of, of interest that was charged in the country. And in the 17th century, there were a lot of debates about should the usury level be brought lower and lower, or should the market be free to determine, borrowers and lenders free to determine 
what rate of interest charge. Now that 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 I think is is the early the early formulation of a natural rate of interest. It, it's the rate you know, you know if you go and, and buy I don't know a packet of matches, the price you pay <laughs> is the natural <laughs> price for a packet of matches because you you don't have to buy that packet of matches and the a seller doesn't have to sell it to you. So it's set in the market. It then becomes more complicated. It becomes an idea of of monetary economists, in particular, the great Swedish economist, not Vixel, who writing in the late 19th, early 20th century. And Vixel suggests a natural rate of, he has a rather complicated view, he says the natural rate of interest is the return on capital of an economy without money. And then he says, if you sort of superimpose money on the system, the rate of interest will reflect that return on capital. He then says, you can tell the natural interest rate. You can't observe it directly, which is one of the problems of the natural interest rate. But you can, you can infer it from whether there is inflation or deflation in the economy. So Vixel says, if the interest rates if the central bank is keeping interest rates too low, then and inflation follows, then the interest rate, the, the policy rates are below the natural rate. He says then, if the price level falls, if the price level is falling and you have deflation, then Vixel says then the policy rates are above the natural rate. And th- this is a view held by modern monetary policymakers and central bankers. And it was the view that was the rationale for these extremely low and negative interest rates in the last decade, and also for the quantitative easing. And I argue somewhat differently. I say, forget about inflation (laughs) and deflation. You don't know what the natural rate is, but there are other things that would be telling you, aside from inflation, that the, nat- that the policy rate was below, so to speak, the natural rate. And you would observe, the things I observe are the asset price inflation that we've just talked about, credit booms, and so forth. Those, those would be, the, to my mind, the indications that the policy rate has been set too low. So I, I say that you, you can tell the natural rate by its absence, because bad things, so to speak, or or dangerous things are happening in the financial system. So one thing I should add to that is I didn't mention the misallocation of capital. If you have interest rates at too low a level, you will have a a misallocation of capital into projects that won't deliver a satisfactory return. Another sort of grave problem from interest rates being too low. Yeah, let's talk a bit more about that because I think our listeners are quite familiar with Schumpeter's evolutionary process of creative destruction. So to your point before, why have the low interest rate put a break on the process by having now unnatural selection and capital destruction? Well, I mean, I, I discovered a, the writings of a, a late 19th century American economist who's president of, of Yale called Arthur Hadley. And Hadley actually suggests that, that interest rates lead to encourage the process of, of natural selection. If you think about it, we, we often talk about the interest rate as a hurdle rate for an investment. So if you will, the higher the hurdle rate, only the more efficient companies can get over a high hurdle rate. Now, Schumpeter, the Austrian economist, in his way, perhaps the second most colorful economist after John Law, and, and, and actually, just as brilliant as law. But Schumpeter has this notion, famous notion of creative destruction. In Schumpeter's world, profits are always dwindling away and, and the economy is, is sort of moving towards sclerosis. So you need a constant flow of companies being created and, com- and other companies being destroyed and innovation and entrepreneurs and I argue, this is not a, a fashionable position, and, and it's very much against the, the view of the Keynesian economists who tend to dominate the world of academia and policymaking, that the, the low interest rates of recent years 
have impeded the creative disruption in the economy. And, and you can see that by the relatively low levels of policies that occurred after the global financial crisis in both Europe and in the United States. And then later by the proliferation of so-called zombie companies. These were companies that couldn't afford to pay their interest. I mean, their, their profits were not large, sufficient to cover their interest charges at a time when interest rates themselves were at historically low level. And the, I also argue that this lack of creative destruction then has an impact on, on productivity and therefore, and the lack of productivity feeds through to low wage growth. Uh, so people have argued, the, 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 if you will, the, you know, the conventional central banker view or the establishment view is that becomes a justification for lower interest rates. At one stage, I think the you know, former Fed chair, Ben Bernanke, in around, say, 2018, responding to low productivity figures, he says this is dovish news for interest rates, whereas, in other words, that interest rates will, get, will, will come down because productivity is low. I'm arguing, I'm reversing <laughs> the order. I'm saying the low interest rates appear to be actually leading to low productivity. And then you get a sort of you know, horrible feedback loop because then the low productivity feeds back into the low interest rates. So I, I think one of the problems, and I think one of the problems that besets modern economics, that in my experience, people who've actually worked in financial markets as investors and bankers and so forth, where we, those of us with practical experience, realize the sort of feedback between finance, between our perceptions or policies and the financial system and the economy. And there are these constant feedbacks, what, what George Soros calls reflexivity, whereas the academic economists nowadays tends to just have an abstract view of the economy that without really any impact of, you know, of financial and monetary policy on this abstract view of the economy. It's, it's a very to me, it's a, it's a view that is extraordinarily far away from the reality that one can observe. Edward, I wanted to end this interview with a wonderful quote from the very beginning of your book. And the quote goes like this. Our earth is degenerate in these latter days. Bribery and corruption are common. Children no longer obey their parents. Every man wants to write a book. And the end of the world <laughs> is evidently approaching. Now... One might think that this is the headline of today's newspaper. Yeah, I, I, now I must stop you there, because that quote comes from Homer and Silla's famous history of interest rates, which is the, is the Bible of giving you the, the, giving you the five millennia history. Of, and my book is about interest. It obviously writes about it. And Homer and Silla writing history of interest. So they cite this quote, but so I couldn't resist putting it in, but actually I did a bit of research on it, and it, it look, it's, it's almost certainly apocryphal. In fact, a lot of, uh, at one stage, I was going to use as epigraphs at the beginning of each chapter, apocryphal quotes about interest, like, for instance, you know, the, the claim that, that Einstein said that interest was the eighth wonder of the world, which Einstein never actually said. It's so perfect that this apocryphal quote, that I couldn't resist putting it in, Slightly as a sort of inside joke to Dick Siller. Sidney Homer's dead, but Dick Siller I know, and I thought it might amuse him if I replicated it. There's a very good website called Quote Investigator. If you ever think a quote is too good to be true, you have to go to the Quote Investigator website where the writer will say, where, the, where they re research the quotes to see what they have. So it, it could be true, it could be a serious, but it, uh, you know, it's probably just made up sometime in the 20th century. But it, it does seem to, you know, it does seem to apply today. I mean, not least, you know, me publishing a book, and you try and put a book out today, and, you're, and the publisher says, well, you know, 60,000 books are published in England every year. And you're thinking, wow, <laughs> that's slightly more books <laughs> than we probably need. It's so wonderful that, that, that you would say that, because I, you know, I, I can't help but being captivated. Whenever I, whenever I read that on the very first pages in the book, I was thinking, this has to be a wonderful book. 
just the, the last question I wanted to ask you here before I, I let you go, I want to be very respectful of your time, but you started the price of time from the origins of Mesopotamia up to today. What is the most surprising fact that you learned on this journey writing your wonderful book? I think, if I can call it a fact, is that over the course of writing the book, I came to realize how central the interest rate was to all, all of human life in the sense of putting a price on time, but in particular to the capitalist system. Because as I say somewhere, you know, if, if you have what we call a piece of capital, it's something generating income. And unless you apply a discount rate, an interest rate, a capitalization rate to that income, you can't have a price. You would have an infinite price. I think one of the 17th century economists said that, you know, without interest rate, there would be no difference between the value of an acre of land and, a value, and, and, and you know, 2,000 acres of land. Interest is that we have, we have lost sight of this most extraordinarily important, the most important economic, if you want to call it, for want of a better word, variable. And because we lost sight of what it did and the richness of its functions, what my friend Jim Grant calls, the, calls interest the universal price, because we've lost a sense of the universality of interest, we have, uh, I think you know, we have gone down a pretty, pretty bad route. And we're at the moment, you know, with, you know, obviously with inflation coming and interest rates rising and the financial markets cracking, we're sort of beginning to recognize the errors of our way. And here we are today. Perhaps that should be the last famous words. The name of the book is The Price of Time. It's a wonderful, wonderful book, Edward. Would you like to say a few words about the book here before we round off the interview? My definition of a good bookshop will be my book is the sale in it. <laughs> well said, well said. Well, Edward, thank you so much for your time. Okay, thanks very much, T. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.